This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. My guest today is Alex Danko from Shopify. Alex is our first Triple Crown guest, having first appeared on Invest Like the Best in 2019, Business Breakdowns on Shopify in 2021, and now Web3 Breakdowns. Our conversation today focuses on a new concept, token-gated commerce, and how Shopify is building around this theme. Given the market turmoil in crypto assets, we talk about true use cases of token-gated commerce and why blockchain technology is unlocking something that was not possible otherwise. Please enjoy my conversation with Alex Denko. Alex, we're going to talk about something very specific inside of Shopify that you've been working on a lot, which is a great specific excuse to talk about some much bigger, broad trends. The topic is going to be token-gated commerce, which is an interesting term that probably no one's heard before, and we'll get there. But I think to begin, I've done a lot of work with Toby, with you, with others explaining Shopify over the years. It's an ecosystem that fascinates me. Maybe you could, from your perspective, give a quick level set on what Shopify itself represents before we can get into this really interesting new topic. So Shopify, in a sentence, is the platform that commerce is built on. Commerce is this incredibly complicated, wonderful, mysterious thing. It is not one size fits all. It depends on the merchant. It varies by the buyer. It varies by the products. It varies by the settings. There is no one way to think about how commerce works. Commerce is so much bigger and so much more diverse than anybody can understand. And that's what makes it such an amazing place to work. I know you had Toby on the show recently talking about the infinite game. The infinite game of commerce is something that is never won or never over because commerce is just vastly more interesting than you and I can understand. But there are a lot of ways in which having a common platform for commerce and a common set of software instructions and a common infrastructure for representing things and working with each other is actually a really powerful resource for merchants to be able to go do amazing things. We talk about Shopify is the platform for commerce. I think I put it when I was on the business breakdowns talking about Shopify the first time. I'd like to point out something, which is that Shopify has 2 million odd merchants and they employ several million people and they collectively reach buyers that are very, very large all around the world. But Shopify is only around 10,000 people. That's a big company, but it's small relative to the impact that we have in the world's commerce systems. And the reason why we have that leverage is because of software. Software is an unreasonably powerful tool for getting something right once and then giving that power for other people to build on top of and for other people to extend into their specific use cases. So I think we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about platforms and what platforms actually are and how they achieve those amazing things. And we're going to talk about them in the context of a very, very specific product that I am working on called token-gated commerce, which is a lot of fun. I really want to make sure that we frame all of this discussion in terms of this understanding of platforms and Shopify being the platform that commerce is built on. Because if you understand the hard problems that platforms have to solve, 
and I'll give you a hint, it's called interoperability, (laughs) then that is a really good starting point for a couple of interesting topics. One, why do we care about blockchains? And what on earth are they doing that's useful for us? And why are we mucking around there? Two, what is it that merchants want to do with these things? And how does it help them sell products to their dedicated buyers? And three, what is this whole that's greater than the sum of its parts coming along that we believe with token-gated commerce, we have this incredibly fun nugget to play with that's going to be the foundation for some pretty awesome businesses for a long time. Can you give an example that is not at all Shopify related on interoperability and the power of platforms from history that people might be familiar with? Let's talk about interoperability for a second. People use this to mean a lot of things, but in general, what it means is that imagine that you have two levels of a system where one level of the system needs to interact with the other level, and you have M players on level one and you have N players on level two. They both need to be able to work with each other in a way that just works fluently without really having to talk to each other very much. I'll give you an example, which is the shipping container. Now, you love talking about the shipping containers on the show. I have a factory that makes inputs, and you have a factory that takes those inputs, and you build something value-added out of them, and I need to ship it from me to you. How do we do this? Well, we could work together on figuring out what is the shape of box that best fits this part, and how do I work with a shipper to make sure that that box is going to go on their boat or on their plane effectively, and how do we negotiate all these things? Or we could just put it all in the same exactly standardized 40-foot box that goes on boats that know how to fit exactly that box on it and through a supply chain that knows how to deal with this thing and then out the other side with neither of us ever having to even know about each other or what we're putting in. This is this idea of a constraint that deconstrains. It's a very, very common motif that you see in interoperability, which is this idea of a free-for-all is actually no freedom at all. A very, very common lesson here. I can give you all sorts of examples throughout history of saying, If you give people no rules whatsoever, and then everybody tries to work with itself, that's a mess. Nothing ever gets done. However, if you have these really nice constraints or conventions or platforms or standards, many different angles of approaching this problem of interoperability, you can actually unlock something pretty magical, which is this community of M people on one side and this community of N people on the other side can actually create M times N different things without needing M times N different bits of glue stitching all of those things together. There's a little bit of a notion in all the examples of either the movement of atoms or bits between parties. The shipping container is moving stuff, APIs, which I think of as like a clear standard for we can all agree that we can pass things through this common, very simple chain or something, is the bits version of it. So what's the relationship between interoperability and platforms? Those are two separate concepts. How do those two things come together? I'm glad you mentioned APIs because I think there's this idea, which is, oh, if you want to standardize something with how people talk to each other, you use an API. That is part of it, but that's not the entire thing. Just saying API and waving your hands magically does not create interoperability. Many businesses have learned this lesson. I'll tell you how these two things relate to each other by example, which is what are two things that Shopify is not in the world of commerce? One thing that Shopify is not is one-size-fits-all software. There are some kinds of platforms for merchants to sell. I'm not going to name any names, but you probably know which ones I'm talking about, where I'm going to go sell on these platforms. What do I do? So I load up the website, and then they're like, what is the product name? What product quantity are you going to sell? What is the price? How are you going to ship it? You have no freedom whatsoever to customize your business at all. You fill in a bunch of fields that go to one database that's represented one way, which is however this company wants to present it. And that's that. There are good parts of that. The good parts of that is that everything is represented one way. It all will work. If the big company wants to add things to that or change it, they can do that because there's a common way that all commerce is represented. But on the other hand, it sucks because as a merchant, you want your business to be exactly what you want it to be. If I'm a merchant, I want to think about this way. I want to think about my business as doing these things. I want my storefront to look a certain way. I want it to tell a certain kind of brand story. You can't do that if you're just populating a bunch of fields. That is not how to build a great business online that's going to be able to tell a very good story. 
Shopify is a reputation of that view of commerce, which is commerce is a bunch of boxes that you fill in about what product you're selling. On the other hand, Shopify is equally a reputation of what I would call enterprise software. Enterprise software is, I come in and I sell software to you. I say, okay, your business is so unique that we're going to have to create everything from scratch. You're going to customize all your database fields. You're going to customize everything about how this information is represented in your business. That seems really nice at first, except for the minute that you try to get it to play nicely with anything else, it all just seizes up. And you have to hire a systems integrator who comes in and is like, okay, I need to get this app to talk to these other apps. Now we start seeing wires crossing everywhere, trying to connect this thing to this thing to this thing. And before you know it, Patrick, I don't know if you know pictures like this. You have certain images from the early 19th century of telephone wires in cities. Yes, they're amazing. You needed one wire to connect every operator to every other operator. It's quite the image. That is enterprise software. Enterprise software is like every single customization that you want to make to do a thing has to be glued to every other thing. It's a mess and it's horrible. And this is also a terrible way to think about building your business with software. This seems like a pretty hard trade-off. Either I can have consumer software that works one way and is very easy, but not flexible at all. Or I can have enterprise software, which is infinitely flexible, but on the other hand, it sucks. Is there a thing that is neither of those things that is actually better? And the answer is yes, it's called platforms. But platform work is hard because platform work is about constraints. What you do is you say, okay, we need to come up with the right constraints so that everybody can build their businesses in a common way where everything will interoperate. But on the other hand, it's still very easy and very effortless in order to get something good out of it that plays nicely with everything else. When we talk about Shopify and Shopify's history as being a platform, the oldest Shopify product that absolutely nails this is something called Liquid, which is our templating language. Liquid is as old as Shopify. For most people, when they think of what is Shopify, what does it do, people think it's a way to build a storefront. And that's still true. This is the thing that is Shopify's oldest and best product is our ability to do the following things. Say, okay, commerce is complicated. There are lots of people who want to build apps that make many, many, many ways to customize your front end of your storefront. Commerce is also something where we want there to be many, many themes. As a merchant, I can go set up a Shopify store and I can install a theme. That theme looks like this, or it looks like this, or it can look like something custom, and these all look wonderful. Now, here's the problem. How do I make it so that any app can make any change to any theme without the app or the theme developers talking to each other, or without making custom glue between it every time? That constraint is a really, really challenging problem. And so Shopify has a templating language called Liquid, which says everything in Shopify is writing into this common, very, very strict, very concise format called Liquid. And then that is what powers all the themes, which make these storefronts out of Liquid. And it is amazingly elegant in the sense that, first of all, it just works and it still just works and has worked 15 years later. It's the workhorse of why people keep coming back to Shopify again and again and again to build these beautiful storefronts and websites because it will always work. And the reason why it always works is because Liquid is dead simple. It is extraordinarily restricted in what you can do with it and how it can represent things. And that restriction is what allows it to represent anything everywhere in a way that always works. So I want to pause here and actually emphasize the more restricted the design is of this interface between one side of the problem and the other side of the problem, the more powerful and flexible it will be and the easier and more customizable it will be. Can you think of an example where that's violated, where someone's trying to create a constrained standard, but there's too many degrees of freedom and it failed? Sure. That's almost every standard. Most standards do not succeed. And the reason why they do not succeed is because they just don't grasp the problem entirely correctly. 
you know, there's that XKCD joke, which is like, there are 12 standards. What we need is a common standard for how everybody represents this. The next day, there are 13 standards. Standards work is very, very difficult to achieve because so many things have to go right. But if you look across, even in the history of computing, there are several incredible reference standards that are held up. Unix is one of them. The IP internet protocol is probably the greatest one of all of them, is a very, very, very restricted way in which you can represent the information going through the internet. But what it means is that any web page, any application, any whatever can submit something that can then get communicated over any kind of communications network. It could be sent over copper wire. It could be sent over ethernet. There are some aficionados that have sent message by carrier pigeon over internet protocol. You can do it. It doesn't matter. As long as it runs through internet protocol, anything will work on either side. This overall design, I know you talked with Toby the last time he came on the show. This overall design is something called hourglass architecture or narrow waste architecture. It's one of the most powerful ideas in building things. This idea of if you want many, many things to be able to interoperate with many, many other things, there needs to be a narrow waste that is as constrained as possible between them. Very, very important idea. And so Shopify really, really understands this as evidence through how we built Liquid and how every app developer can make apps that works with every theme developer and they don't talk to each other and you don't need a piece of custom glue like you would with enterprise software. It just works. Same with anything can go into the internet protocol and it can be communicated over anywhere. Another good example of a narrow waste in computing is like the x86 architecture, which Intel made. Anybody can submit instructions to this instruction set, and then it can be executed on any processor that knows how to deal with the x86 instruction set. But there's this common waste that it goes through. And I'm including Intel in there just to show that there are a couple of different ways that a narrow waste can come about. It could come about through a bunch of different academics getting together. It could come through with a standard body, but it also could come through when like one monopoly says so. In the case with Intel, there's not any one way to do this, but they're hard to achieve. And when you do, you have something that's going to last for a very long time. It's sort of obvious with the examples you've given, whether it's the shipping container, the internet itself, x86, ISO, whatever, that when you get one of these right, a crazy amount can be built on top of it in ways that you could never envision when you set the standard. The creativity that can exist on top of it is vast and unpredictable. That brings us to the topic at hand, which is token-gated commerce. Maybe we need to start with why blockchains are potentially interesting narrow wastes. But before we do that, token-gated is two-part, token and gated. Give us a high-level description of why you are doing this, why you are spending your time on it, why Shopify is heavily invested in this notion. This is a new idea, and I want to understand it at a high level. First, let me actually tell you what is token-gated commerce, because at its heart, it's actually a very simple idea. Token-gated commerce means here's a product, and I'm going to put a gate in front of it. And if you want to pass the gate, you need to show me a token that says I passed the gate. More generally speaking, what does this look like in practice? Well, what it looks like is, hey, I'm a brand. I have all these cool products. I want to make them very exclusive. If you want to unlock the product, you have to connect your wallet, a crypto wallet, sign a transaction showing that you own this wallet. And this wallet owns, let's say, the right NFT. Because I own this NFT, I can unlock this product. Or it could be because I own this NFT, I unlock early access to a drop. I can get to the drop 15 minutes earlier than everybody else. Or because I own the rare version of this NFT, I'm able to get the rare version of the hoodie. Anybody can get the black version, but if I have the rare NFT, I can get the red version. And that red version is cool. Or because I own this NFT, I'm able to buy this product and you can only buy one product per number of NFTs you own. These are all various ways of implementing the simple idea, which is there is context somewhere. And that context is going to influence how my business wants to treat you. What if as the buyer, I can bring that context with me and sign with it, proving I am me and here's how I show I have some ownership over this bit of context and my storefront can respond to this and say, okay, 
Now that I see that you've signed for this bit of context, my storefront is going to respond to that context by doing something appropriate. Maybe it's unlocking a product. Maybe it's giving you early access to a drop. Maybe it's letting you get into a party. It could be anything. It could be, here's something live and in person. Here's access to 15 minutes of a live stream with me. It could be anything. It doesn't just have to be products. This idea of token gating, define it very, very simply, is it's a kind of behavior that is very, very natural. It's how do I get into the exclusive thing? How do I show that I have done the challenge of gaining access? How do I get the thing that I want to get that is hard and feels like a reward? These are very, very old ideas in commerce. This idea of commerce is a challenge that the buyer and the merchant do together. And token gating, we are finding, is an incredible foundational piece of UX for the basic idea of the most meaningful kind of commerce is a challenge that you do together. If you think about the many, many aspects of this, I want to start with the token itself, because if you think of a non-fungible token, which have been popular, you own a board ape, you own a crypto punk, you own whatever, piece of art or whatever, you could see a world where brands build specific product lines that tailor to, you have to own one of these things that are already independently exclusive. So we're sort of riding the scarcity of board apes, let's say, as a cool way to create something custom for them. Talk to me what you've learned here. Do you think that most merchants will outsource the scarcity function of the tokens themselves? Or are you going to empower them to also create their own tokens that trade? It just seems like the world has coalesced around a small number of the most popular projects. Like all the examples you hear are, if you're an owner of one of those special things, we're going to treat you differently because it's like you have a black card or something. So start with the token piece. How do you think it will work? In that question, there were like three or four really good questions. So I want to try to answer them in the right order here. First, if you look at these NFTs, what are these things? What are they any good at representing? What do they all have in common? Let's break down a couple of common aspects of these NFT projects. One aspect of them is these NFTs are owned by people. And the way that they own them is through their wallets. What is a wallet? Well, at a very basic level, a wallet is I have my public address and I have my private key and I sign my private key to show that I'm who I am. My wallet address is associated with this token on this smart contract, which means I own this ape. First of all, let me just present a very basic observation, which is what are people doing with their wallets? Well, they're connecting them everywhere. They're connecting them to discords to get into the discord. They're connecting them to adapt. They're connecting them to any kind of application that is asking them to authenticate in a certain kind of way. Now, what we're seeing is people want to connect these wallets to storefronts. They say like, hey, I'm not a fungible buyer. I'm a non-fungible buyer because I have this token. We really like saying NFTs aren't a kind of product. They're a kind of buyer, a non-fungible buyer. I really want to get this into people's minds. NFTs, fundamentally to us, are an input for commerce. They're a piece of context that the buyer brings with them when they show up to the storefront. It can also be an outcome of commerce. We can do a commercial transaction where one of the outputs of this commerce is I mint a new NFT and give it to you. It doesn't have to be an NFT either. It could be an ERC-20. It could be any number of other things. These are very, very flexible ideas. But even this very basic thing of, I have an NFT, I connect it to the storefront, it unlocks a product. Then I go check out, and maybe on the other end of the checkout, you want to sell me another NFT, and then I buy that also. And then maybe I'll use that somewhere else. All of these are very, very interesting kinds of outputs and inputs to what we call commerce. But as you said before, I want to make sure that I'm answering your original question here, which is over the last year or two, there was this explosion of communities who are all issuing these tokens and everybody was getting in. Oh, this is cool art. These are going to have utility. Who are all these communities? And now what we're seeing is, yeah, a lot of these communities didn't really have much of a game plan, but some of them do. And the ones that do are actually turning out to be formidably impressive media companies because they have this fascinating way of creating fan bases. One way to look at NFTs is this is a new way of creating a fan base, but it's like creating a fan base on the very beginning. You have to have some idea of what you're doing with your brand. But nonetheless, a specific example of a merchant that we work with closely is Doodles. 
Doodles is one of the premier NFT brands. They understand fully that they are merchants and they are brands and they are media powerhouses. They understand that that's the kind of business that they're building. And they see these tokens as a new fundamental piece of what is it that their fans have that they can bring with them and connect into places in order to bring all that context with them. Back to the core action that ultimately Shopify, the platform is going to try to facilitate, we'll call it, presumes a couple things that I have a wallet. So I need to ask about wallets. I have some tokens. I show up on a website. I connect my wallet with those tokens to the website. And then commerce happens that's specific to what I unlock. That part's the easiest to understand. It's also kind of easy to understand your examples. Like we only make a hundred of these cool sweatshirts and you have to have this thing to buy one. It seems like then token-gated commerce is really, really dependent on outside of the merchant. The merchant can do its thing creatively, but people have to have a wallet and people have to have tokens. So maybe starting with a wallet, is Shopify building wallets? It seems as though MetaMask or some of these wallets are not very user-friendly. Not that many people have them. Most people don't have them. Conceptually, it's an important piece of this whole idea. So what do you think about wallets? Who will win that? Will it be regulated? Are you going to govern it? Download them on wallets. One, Shopify is not making a wallet. There are many, many wallets, and we want you to use whatever wallet you want to use. You have your own wallet. You bring it with you. Wallets are really something that you have. If you want to use MetaMask, because that's where you store all your stuff, you should use that. If you want to use Rainbow Wallet, you should use that. But your general question of like, wallets aren't particularly user-friendly. They're not today, but wallet UX improvement is going to be the single most important tailwind to all of this over the next while. It's shocking how it's only a couple of years old that MetaMask has even existed and used by people like the blockchain world before MetaMask was a little bit like the internet before the web browser in the sense of like it was there, but it was kind of hard to see and it was hard to reason about unless you were a power user. Now, all of a sudden you have these wallets where I can show you what you're doing and I can show you what NFTs you hold in quote unquote your wallet. That was an enormous step forward for people to start feeling a sense of ownership and agency over, I have these collectibles. And it turns out, by the way, that there's no such thing as in your wallet because there is data that's indexed on a blockchain that a wallet address is able to sign for. So the concept of in is a fairly clever illusion. But honestly, that's not that different from saying there's money in your bank account. No, there's a bunch of pointers. The reason why banking works is because we were able to present that as a very usable abstraction for people. Same thing with wallets on blockchains. It's just like, yes, in a meaningful sense, the NFT is not in your wallet, but we present it that way because it's convenient. And that's how people like to think about them. Wallet UX is dramatically improving. Go play around with Rainbow Wallet if you want to really see what is around the corner in terms of being easily able to do and fun. That idea of saying wallet improvement is going to unlock a lot of things, I think is dead on. Your second question around not many people have wallets right now. Well, it's more than you think. And part of the reason why there are more people with wallets than you think is to some degree, you can look at cryptocurrencies as a viral mechanism for issuing people public-private key pairs with UX around them. That's what these wallet is. It's a public-private key pair with UX around it that is in a meaningful sense held outside of some other institution. I have it on my phone. When people are like, oh, aren't you trusting MetaMask? MetaMask is just UX. What matters is what's the actual key pair that you hold. But when you talk about this idea of saying, why does all of this matter for commerce? I can understand these simple use cases, but is this actually a big deal? Well, let me present it to you and how we opened up this episode talking about infrastructure, which is narrow wastes are unbelievably valuable if you can establish them. And token gating is a narrow waste. The token can mean anything. It is just information on a blockchain. That information on a blockchain can represent so many different things that is going to change and evolve and mature and become more elaborate over time. 
Meanwhile, what's behind the gate, i.e. all of commerce, all of the products, all of the experiences, all of the special cool stuff that I want to get as a consumer, that will also change over time and will change and iterate and mature. But if you can establish the gate as the narrow waist that everybody agrees to use and everybody agrees to follow a common format for how I indicate, has the gate been passed, yes or no, you have established something unbelievably valuable as a new kind of tool in the toolbox of culture and in the toolbox of demand. I really want to talk about this idea of what is demand. Token gating as a new UX pattern for demand is going to be so much more interesting and so much more powerful than I think most people have wrapped their heads around. I'm going to force you to hit pause on demand, but we'll spend a lot of time there to ask the lazy but important question, which is why do we need a blockchain for any of this? I should point out that we're recording this on June 13th when every cryptocurrency is either liquidating or Bitcoin's down 20% and ETH is down to record new lows and blah, blah, blah. There's tons of downside volatility in crypto and I think good, healthy existential questions around the whole ecosystem with what seem to be two standards that have any real persistent value, but lots of volatility and questions. So it begs the question, what specifically about blockchain is so important here versus any other software that you guys are building? This is the question. Why do you need a blockchain for this? You don't need a blockchain for anything in the sense that this common standard could have emerged somewhere else and that'd be fine. The question is, people are using blockchains for it because it is working for them. We should look at why are people using this fairly inconvenient quote unquote thing to do something that seems very simple. But I want to give you a peek into why blockchains aren't like, oh, here is actually this incredibly sophisticated reason why it has to be civil attack resistant. And I need nation state level security that nobody is double spending my tokens. No, 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 no. It's actually a lot simpler than that. It's just when two different companies or three different companies or 10 different companies are trying to interoperate around this very basic thing called, are you allowed to pass the gate? Yes or no? Then having the information of what's the wallet address and what can it sign for stored in a neutral place that is actually a phenomenally convenient place to store that data for interoperability purposes. Vitalik put this meme up on Twitter the other day that I thought was really perfect. It's the bell curve meme. You all know the bell curve meme where the dumb guy on the left side of the meme is like, put everything on the blockchain. And the guy in the middle, the overthinker is like, no, blockchains are only for like things that have to be nation state attack resistant, whatever. And then the smart guy on the right is like, actually, blockchains are a pretty convenient place to store data. That's the lens through which it's really helpful to think about this. Let me actually give you a specific example of how people are using this as a way of showing why blockchains make this problem so much simpler. Imagine I'm a brand. I want a token gate to holders of my token. I'm the Alex Danko brand. You read Alex Danko's newsletter. So you have Alex Danko's token. You can unlock a special issue of my newsletter today. That's fine. You can do that. But you also don't need a blockchain to do that. I can do that on Substack. I can do that anywhere. What if I want to say, I'm going to unlock this special issue of Alex Danko's newsletter to only people that are in your community, Patrick, like only people who are the gold listeners to invest like the best? Or what if I want to do a special collab where I want to get to your fans, or you want to get to my fans, or I want to get to people who are both of our fans? Suddenly, that becomes a much, much, much harder problem if the credential that I'm authenticating with is stored in your Substack or in my Medium page or in your wherever. All of a sudden, you're creating this community authentication scheme that's built out of links back to links back to dependencies in someone's database. This starts to suck real fast if you try to do anything that actually looks like what real community behavior looks like. Real community behavior looks like, hey, I let your fans in and you let my fans in. How do I know who your fans are? Well, it's the people who have your NFT. It's so simple. 
it's so simple. It almost makes people's heads spin a second time where you're like, you're right. That is really simple. It's like, this is actually very, very hard to do without there being something common in the middle where we can just define, okay, what is it that we accept are your fans? It's people who can sign for this token ID on this contract. I've gone way too far into the conversation without asking what the literal mechanic that Shopify is building will let people do and won't let them do. Is it as simple as saying, if I'm a merchant, you can sign with whatever, and I'm going to go through a menu and pick the tokens that I want to let and tie them to a certain thing, and then you handle the rest? What is literally going to be the thing that you offer? That's actually a very good way to put it, which is that the number of things people want to do with token gating is very diverse and very hard to predict. We cannot know what all of them are, but you know what? We don't have to. We're a platform. That is what app developers do. This is how Shopify is built. This is exactly like the problem of saying, well, there are many themes in the theme store and there are many apps that want to make mechanics. Do I have to think of every single thing that an app could do so that themes can know about it? No, we just build our platform in a way where we present the right constraints and the right formats for saying, hey, merchant, you want to do some token gating. Well, there are a lot of different ways that you might think your token gating wants to do. Some people want to token gate for discounts. Some people want to token gate around mechanics to do a cool sneaker drop. Some people want to token gate so that people can buy variants on a product to correspond to variants of their NFTs. All of these are perfectly valid ways to do token gating, and we're not going to come up with what they are. What we're doing is we're creating a common platform for app developers to go make whatever kind of token gating rules you want to make in a way where those token gating rules can be presented in any selling surface where the merchant wants to go. Maybe they want to sell on the online store, and that's great. Maybe they want to sell at a retail point of sale environment. We have merchants doing this now. They're doing a pop-up store, and they're an NFT brand. They're like, oh, I only want to sell this thing in my pop-up store to people who have this NFT and can sign for it, and I want to do it on retail POS. No problem. Some people want to buy things on mobile, and we have the shop app, which is our mobile app for shopping. And there's some merchants who want to set up a little token-gated store in the shop app that works really well on mobile. And we have a product called GM Shop that I'll tell you about in a minute that is exactly that. But your general question of what is the product that Shopify lets merchants do, it's, well, you can do anything because we're a platform. That's the hard work of being a platform is coming up with what are exactly the right constraints that anybody can make inputs to it, and anybody on the other side can read them and go carry out token-gating instructions if we've come up with exactly the right constraints in the middle. The slogan I like to say when people say like, what are you doing with your life? I say, I'm making Shopify wallet aware. That's what I'm doing. Wallet awareness is not a single thing. It is an idea around everybody accepting a certain set of constraints that become deconstraining. They're constraints that become liberating. It's root level. It's not specific use case addressing. It's enabling whatever use cases. And again, the core idea is straightforward. You show up with something, that unlocks something, And creativity will decide both sides of that, what the tokens look like and what the unlock looks like. Exactly. The nice thing, though, is that just coming up with a narrow waist in the absence of users is a fairly pointless exercise. If you're not doing it with real merchants who are doing real things, there's no point. Honestly, like if I can be critical about the blockchain world for a second, we all know many, many projects in the blockchain world. They're just incredibly self-referential. I forget who said this about DeFi. It's like, show me a single thing it has fied. What has this financed? It has only financed itself. It hasn't financed anything else. That's exactly right. In the absence of somebody on the outside of this system getting something valuable about it, you're all kidding yourselves. The wonderful thing about Shopify and the blockchain world, which I'm just so lucky to get to work here, is that we're ultimately accountable to people who are outside of the system. Merchants, at the end of the day, care about whether they have sold products. Not whether their token has gone up, not what kind of yield they've promised on their thing, not whether this perpetual motion machine can keep spinning. They're like, did you move merch for me? Yes or no. 
this idea of saying blockchains are a very convenient place to create these community mechanics around, oh, I was issued this token and now I can present this token in this other storefront or in this other channel. It all interoperates really nicely. It's like the ultimate litmus test for whether any of this is working is have you sold regular merch for regular dollars to regular people? It is very, very nice in the sense that ultimately success is defined by something outside of the perpetual motion scheme that is cryptocurrency. I want to go like too far off on this side tangent. I do find it interesting, which is, is there a potential here that the whole, what used to be called the fat protocol thesis of the values in this ecosystem is going to occur to the token holders is actually not true at all. And that really, we don't need a lot of market cap to be in these blockchains. There is this narrative in crypto, which is tokens are a way to bootstrap protocols. You've heard many versions of this. Protocols are really hard to adopt. What you need is to give people an economic incentive to adopt the protocol. That's why there are tokens. Yeah, that's kind of true, except for a token is also going to incentivize me to adopt the other protocol also. (laughs) You haven't actually solved any problem here. However, I do think that tokens help establish protocols, just not in that way. What is actually interesting, tokens give people an incentive to use a protocol is like super overrated. What's underrated is gas fees give people an incentive to be concise and conform to the narrowest waste possible for interoperable system design. Why has Ethereum succeeded? It's not because people are incentivized to hold the ETH token because to get into ETH, there are lots of tokens. It's like because people are incentivized to try to spend as few of them as possible on gas because Ethereum forces you to be very, very, very concise because block space is very scarce. If you want to get into this very scarce block space, you have to design what you're doing in this very tight, composable way. Everything is a smart contract address. Everything is a token ID. Everything is a wallet address. You can know very, very few things. The narrow waste of Ethereum is this remarkable freeing constraint that makes everything interoperate with everything else. Now, Bitcoin is an even narrower waste than Ethereum, and it's even harder to change. That's why Bitcoin is going to stick around longer than Ethereum. My Bitcoin maxi self is trying to grip into the podcast, so let's shut him up for a second. Bitcoin is an even narrower waste, and that's what makes it impossible to change. It's so narrow. Ethereum is a little bit less narrow than that, but it's still pretty good. It's still very, very, very convenient in terms of saying, look, we've gotten this way for everybody to agree on what a smart contract address is and what a token ID is and what a wallet address is. So frankly, that's pretty good for everybody using it on a common basis with a common agreement on how to use these constraints. It's very similar to saying everybody agrees that the boxes we're going to put on ships are going to be exactly 40 feet long. And then we save a lot of headache later on. If we think about what we can learn from actual activity so far in these ecosystems, What would obviously jump out is all of the tokens that have been created, whether those are fungible or non-fungible by creators that happen on Ethereum and maybe a little bit on Solana, didn't happen on Bitcoin. So what do you think about the nature of Ethereum, Solana, Bitcoin? Which ones are going to power all of this? Because on the one hand, if narrow wastedness is the criteria, then it sounds like Bitcoin would have an advantage, but nothing's been built on Bitcoin. It's all been built on Ethereum. So how do you square those two ideas? Excuse me, sir. There have been rare Pepe NFTs issued on Bitcoin. (laughs) I mean, that's a good point. Not every narrow waste will accommodate every use case. The 40-foot shipping container narrow waste does not accommodate internet traffic very often. Aside from in thought experiments where you're like, the fastest way to transfer data across the country is by FedEx. I'm sure you've heard that thought experiment. Yeah, that's technically true. But people in practice are not using FedEx to ship terabyte hard drives worth of data, except for when it is Amazon Snowball, blah, blah, blah. 
Shopify has a very, very important principle on the blockchain team, which is that we are blockchain agnostic, because frankly, we want there to be many different blockchains that are good at different things so that consensus can emerge on how to use each one differently. And we don't want to be in the business of picking anytime soon. Let me give you a real example, which is there are some kinds of NFTs called the really expensive, scarce ones. Like I have a doodle, I have an invisible friend, I have a punk, I have an ape, whatever, where it makes a lot of sense that these things are on Ethereum mainnet because being expensive is not a bug at all. The point of these is that they're rare and they're very, very highly legitimate. So being on ETH mainnet is very much a feature for them. Fine. If you look down the road, though, and you're like, there are a lot of merchants that want to be using tokens in a much, much cheaper, much more disposable way, more like marketing flyers. Imagine I'm on a Twitch stream. I want to airdrop a whole bunch of tokens to anybody watching the stream. And then later on, those tokens can get you into my Spotify store or also my Shopify store or anywhere else. ETH mainnet is not right now a very good place to do that because it would just be super, super expensive and you'd lose a lot of the potential of it. But maybe Polygon's a good place or maybe Solana's a good place. I don't know. The point is we would love to support the maximum set of possible behavior. Why can't it just be key-gated versus token-gated commerce where you're doing the Twitch stream and instead of a token drop, there's this five-digit code. Just use this when you check out and that's it. People do that today. I don't want to be like, that doesn't work because that in practice is how people do collabs today. I'm going to do a collab with you where I'm going to drop a five-digit password to your newsletter subscribers. You get into my thing. That does work. And the reason why that works today, by the way, is that an alphanumeric code is more like an NFT than you think, except for the fact that you can copy it. And we'll get back to that part. The problem is that you can copy it. If you want to make it non-reusable, you basically have to defeat the point of it being something that you can share because it just has to link back to a database and has the code been used or whatever. But the fact that like, I'm just going to tell you an alphanumeric password and you can use it wherever is actually very effective. And you know why it's very effective? Because it's text and text is universal. You can copy and paste it anywhere and you will be preserved. It is a universal interface for getting shit done. I'm super, super happy that you brought this up because text always works. It is actually one of the fundamental principles of hourglass architecture or narrow waste architecture is use text. It is a universal way to communicate. One of the most famous narrow wasted architecture in all of computing is Unix, made by Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie. As they were making Unix or shortly after they issued this set of principles for like how to make good software. Everybody remembers the first two and quotes them all the time and everybody has forgot the third one. The first one is write programs that do one thing and do it well. The second one is write programs that play nicely with other programs. So far, so good. Everybody uses those as an excuse for microservices. The third rule is use text as your interface because it is universal. If you forgot the third one, then the first two are just vanity principles. They don't mean anything unless you actually commit to a constraint called, I'm going to communicate with you by passing serial streams of text. Serial streams of text are phenomenally useful as universal interfaces. If I have one app and I want to communicate through another app, I can make an API that talks to you and vice versa. But if 100 apps want to talk to another 100 apps, yeah, probably you should just make a CSV file. Know how to output a CSV file and then read the CSV file. And that works because it's literally a stream of text where we have agreed on a grammar for how to read and interpret that text. So streams of text plus grammar for how to read and write to them are the essence of valuable narrow necks. That's what Liquid is. Literally, it's a convention for how to write things in text and then a grammar for what apps write to them and how themes read for them so that every Shopify store will look good. Text plus grammar is the foundation for all this work. You started to answer a key part, which is if all you wanted was an unlimited amount of people to have a certain access, then pure text is great. If you want to limit it somehow, obviously, then the non-fungible nature of the tokens becomes very important. So I get it. And you could certainly see the world normalizing to, yeah, in your browser, you have a wallet. And you're constantly like getting shit in your wallet from different people. They represent different things and blah, blah, blah. So now let's talk about demand. 
this big topic of what is demand? Where does it come from? How does it tie into this whole story? And why is this new primitive for unlocking demand? Demand is one of my favorite topics because it's simultaneously such a basic thing that everybody has opinions about, but also it's one of the hardest things to conjure. You're not a business until you have demand. A business plan is not demand. Nothing is a substitute for demand. Demand is the thing. Every business owner knows this. What is this mysterious thing and how do I get it? And once I have it, how do I turn it into more? Before I was a Shopify, before I worked in VC, before we knew each other, long before that, I was in a band. It was in a band called The Fundamentals. We were on a label called Stomp Records out in Montreal, a ska punk label. We never made it big, but we toured around. We had a record deal. We were trying to make it big. Like This is what we were doing with our lives. And when you're in a band, your business model is you lose money recording music so that you can break even selling concert tickets so that you can make money selling merch. That is how it works. You are a merchant. What you sell is apparel, basically, to your fans, and you give them a reason to buy your stuff. Everything else is more or less a loss leader for your merch business when you're at that size of band anyway. I'm sure Taylor Swift makes money at all slices of the pie. But even like the Taylor Swift merch empire, is this is massive, massive, massive business because there is demand for Taylor Swift merch. How do you make that demand and where does it come from is the question of being a retailer or the question of being a merchant. I can tell you, honestly, when you're a band, Demand is something where it exists in two states. If I'm a band and I have these fans that are all out there in the world, they like me in a very sort of abstract way. They listen to my music. They're thinking about me sometimes. The demand for them to buy my stuff is not really activated. It doesn't exist in a more tangible form. The proof of this, by the way, is if you look at musicians' merch businesses, let me ask you, what percentage of a band's merch do you think is sold online as opposed to at shows? 50%. Almost none. So the rule of thumb is that no matter how big you are, your online merch business per year is about the same as two weeks of tour dates. Oh, wow. Yeah. It is a very, very, very strong ratio. This is more or less universal, whether you're a small band or a big band or whoever you are. This is not to say that people don't like Taylor Swift unless they're in the Taylor Swift concert. It's like, no, they like Taylor the whole time. But you need there to be a precipitating event to cause people to be compelled to buy the merch now. The demand has taken a more meaningful form. It's almost as if the demand is in like a gaseous state and then it becomes more active when certain things happen. And I want to tell you about those things because there are some universal rules to them and how culture works. When you're a band, you have all these fans and they exist and they know who you are. But then when you come to town, what you do is you play a show. You sell tickets to the show. People buy the ticket and they enter in this space. And it's this very intimate space. And you do a challenge together called Dance to the Music. On completion of the challenge, everybody lines up to go buy the merch. This is a universal rule of music. There is a very, very specific orchestrated sequence of events that causes people to buy your stuff. Everybody who has active experience with being a certain kind of culturally cool merchant will recognize their version of this. Demand isn't enough. It has to be activated demand. It has to be awakened by something. And the thing that awakens demand is a challenge of some sort. I think you were posting about this on Twitter or something. Challenges are the things that make life meaningful. They're the thing that give us identity. They're the thing that give us purpose. They're the thing that makes us feel good about ourselves. Challenge and overcoming the challenge. Demand in absence of challenge is cheap and stupid. It's not necessarily stupid, but it's baseload demand. I have baseload demand for paper towels. That's fine. I can get them from the corner store. I can get them from Amazon. That's fine. But the more meaningful kind of demand that actually is something meaningful to my life, that kind of demand is only awakened by a challenge. It might be the challenge of being in a particular store and really, really talking to a merchant and figuring out what I want. It could be the challenge of going to a show. It could be the challenge of being in a cool collab or whatever it is. But ultimately, demand has to be activated by something. And that thing is challenge. What kind of challenges are the things that people really care about? Well, the basic challenge that we care about is identity and group association. 
I'm a part of this group. I have these peers. I'm living up to a certain challenge that the peer group does. This is really the basis of all culture. That kind of culture is the basis of a certain kind of retailing called products that people buy to be cool or products that people buy to be a part of a group or products that people buy because they have some sort of meaning to them. The number of different kinds of products like this are quite varied. It's not just t-shirts that bands sell. It could be memberships to something. It could be getting tattoos. Everybody has this thing that they're really, really into. But ultimately, demand, I want to bring this back to this sort of nebulous concept of demand, is something that people have understood as a part of commerce for thousands of years. But only up until recently, that demand was always in person. There's a challenge that the buyer and the merchant come together to flesh out what context is the buyer bringing with them? Under what circumstances does this demand unlock and activate the challenge? This is something that people naturally do face-to-face really well. But online, it's really hard to do this. It's hard to show up to an online storefront and bring a vibe with you, do a challenge together, or engage in any of these things. I would say the first mechanic that people online came up with that actually activated this was the drop. The concept of, okay, at noon, the sneakers are going to drop and you have to get them as fast as possible. That's fun. That is a great example of how you sell things. That's how you get demand to actually convert into purchases is you do a drop or you make an exclusive thing or like you create a challenge and you motivate people to get behind the challenge. I believe it was Modest Proposal was on your podcast a long time ago, talking about e-commerce and this idea of getting all the friction out of commerce. That's really not it. There's some kinds of friction that are bad, but there are actually some kinds of friction that are really good. I talked to you about this in the Shopify podcast. This idea of a challenge is required to turn demand into buying. Different cultures do it in different ways. Different kinds of retailers do it in different ways. A luxury brand like Gucci will do this in a very different way than a fast fashion brand like Forever 21 will do it. They're obviously very, very different retailers. They move different kinds of merch for different kinds of price points, but they're doing the same thing. Look at a really, really well-run retailer like Aritzia. All of Aritzia is keyed into getting this latent demand to come in the door, activating it around a certain kind of challenge, and then converting it into incredible brand loyalty. That's what really powers these businesses. Same on the merchant side. You have the challenge of CAC. How do you convert that into something that will produce LTV for a very, very long time? One of the things that positive some, our investment firm, we're really keen on is we've got this huge audience of people. We kind of don't know who anybody is. We know that everyone is super highly activated, interested in the same stuff we're interested in. And this could be something that we use if we want to engage the community in a certain way, create some sort of proof of work or challenge that they have to overcome. And the reward is this thing. It unlocks whatever it unlocks. This could be something that extends beyond you get to buy a red sweatshirt or some privileged piece of physical product or something. It has a lot of other extensions and is ultimately like a community arbiter too. And I hate that word. Word communities drive me nuts because it just means nothing. The problem is it was the right word once upon a time and then everybody hijacked it. Right. But anyway, so this could potentially be something that we use. In that context, what I would care about is the specific person, not who holds the token. If they sent the token to somebody else, I may not want that other person. So tell me a little bit about the difference between someone's identity and something I know about that person versus the holder of a token that can be moved around. I think what matters is in the absence of real users and real behavior, this is all pretty conjecture. What matters is what are people actually doing? What is the actual behaviors of buyers when they go to their favorite merchants? And how does that behavior replicate and spread? My way that I think about the entire bet of crypto, by the way, period, is when you're making a bet on crypto, what is the bet you're making? Everybody has a different answer for this, but my answer is you're betting two things. One, you're betting that wallets change how people behave. And two, over time, that behavior outcompetes the other behavior. It really gets back to this idea of 
crypto fundamentally is a kind of behavior on a literal level. It's the behavior of cryptographic signature. It's the behavior of I have UX around a key pair and I'm going to use it. I'm not afraid to use it to go show that I am me and here's what that means. I'm me and I would like to show that I own this piece of context and I can bring it to the storefront with me that unlocks this product or gets me this thing. Or in the case of Bitcoin, I want to show that I am behaving in a certain way around the UTXOs on the Bitcoin network that mean that I have saved and spent in this way. It's nice because everybody actually agrees on that. What we all have in common is fundamentally this is behavior. One of the things I try to be aware about is I'm someone that gets easily seduced by big ideas. And I'm always trying to remind myself of Matt Kohler's idea. You don't have to predict the future. You just have to notice the present. If we think about the present, what to you are the best examples that have already happened that indicate that this notion of token-gated commerce is going to be a big thing? I love that whole idea, which is just noticing the present better than other people is dramatically better than trying to predict the future. Just look around and see. That, I would say, is to a T how I am trying to lead the team in terms of thinking of what is the ambitious thing that we are building. I want to build the perfect product for the behavior that exists now. Because if we can do that, then we will succeed. If we are guessing at what people do in the future, then we will not. That's just always true. I'll tell you a story from February, which is at February in South by Southwest, we worked on something with the brand Doodles, this Web3 brand who we really like. And they put together something that became affectionately called the Doodleverse in Austin, just outside of the festival grounds. What the Doodleverse was, it was this remarkably well-crafted world. The two title sponsors were us and a paint company. (laughs) So it's like they really, really put a lot of care into their aesthetics. Bear, I think. I forget which thing. I think it was Bear. Anyway, you walk into this world and it's this beautiful, bright colored Disney World type place where it's really fun and visually exciting. And this is remarkable environment that you step into. And it was open to everybody. Everybody can walk around this world and was like, oh my God, what is this? But if you were a doodle holder, you were authenticated, you have a badge, you could tap that badge. And then all of a sudden lights would flash and the room would spin and bubbles would blow. And it would say, welcome doodle holder number 3216. And if you look at the looks on people's faces when that happened was unbelievable. It was these looks of sheer delight. It's the kind of joy that I would associate with Disneyland or these brands that unbelievably know how to craft an experience, the joy of being seen. And I really think, by the way, that if you look at what are these NFTs very good at representing, they're a new unit on the internet for fitting in and then standing out. I fit into this community and then I stand out as this one of them. I fit into Atom Bomb Squad and I stand out as the owner of this blue trap Disney one. I fit into this community and then I stand out as this one. It's not an accident that almost every successful NFT project is that same format of what do I fit into and then how do I stand out? First of all, like that little piece is the fundamental unit of most of human behavior. Fit in and then stand out within that fitting in. You know who talks really well about this is David Perel. Speaks very, very eloquently about this. That behavior of people realizing that they've entered their world and their world saw them and recognized them and that look of Disneyland caliber joy on their faces, that's when we knew we had a business. You can't fake that. So then these people, freshly delighted, would walk over to the merch store and then they found that with their NFTs, they could unlock special gated merch. And it's like, this shit's in the bag. You have the basis of a very successful retail business right there. If you can figure out how to sustainably create and then capture that delight. The feeling of here's the demand and then I'm going to activate the demand with a challenge that becomes a successful retail experience. Why hasn't this exploded more already in terms of someone going to something, a streaming event, uh, whatever, some digital interface and getting pushed tokens, NFTs into their wallet by brands? Like it seems like Nike or some big brand would be all over this, but I'm not aware of an example of it happening. 
is it an infrastructure problem? Is that why you're doing what you're doing? Like, why hasn't this already happened? Eventually, this will happen. Why is it not happening yet? One, the world's best brands who already know how to do this, I mean, they already know how to do it, right? They're not particularly motivated to do it in the new way because they know how to do it in the old way. Disney World does not need tokens to be Disney World. However, there are these new brands like Doodles, which are doing it in this different way that uses tokens that are figuring out how to be new Disney World. And that's great, too. This is not one of these things where the concept of buyer delight in a retail environment requires a blockchain to work. So no, get out of here. People have clearly been doing this for a very long time. But why aren't people dropping tokens in and then getting people to do this? Well, if the tokens are just airdropped to you like coupons, then they don't have any meaning to you. The token is not the thing. The meaning that it represents to you is the thing. Again, this is already happening in the Web3 world where people are getting airdropped all these tokens. And it's like, shut up, shut up, shut up. I don't want these. The token is not the thing. What it means to you is the thing. Oh, yeah. The problem of token spam is for sure going to be a thing no matter what. One answer to this is people are like wallet providers are going to become like Gmail, where people are going to select wallets based on their ability to actually surface the tokens that you care about as opposed to the ones you don't. I don't know. That's someone else's problem to solve, not ours. But this general idea of why aren't people doing this more? Well, people are doing this more. They're doing this more on us. And it's cool. Some of the most fun instances of people doing this, by the way, are not single player gating. It's multiplayer gating. Imagine here's a traditional big Web2 merchant and they want to do a cool collab with an up-and-coming Web3 merchant. What is the right way to do this collab? First of all, this is the exact same as two bands come together to play a show. You have the old band who has lots of fans and lots of albums and lots of money, but they're not necessarily cool anymore. And then you have the young band, which has like 60 fans, but all of them just go nuts for this new music that nobody understands. What do they do? Well, they play a show together. Each community invites the other one in and they both get a reason to care about each other. That's just good culture. That's a common cultural mechanic. So what we see now with these trad brands and these NFT brands collabing together, the example is Superplastic and Gucci, or frankly, Superplastic and Board Ape Yacht Club. These are all collabs that have happened on Shopify. What's Superplastic? Superplastic is a really, really, really cool up-and-coming brand. They started out making toys, really cool figurines. Superplastic is the most credible contender for building the metaverse. That's who they are. They started out building toys and these incredibly cool storylines and characters. And they've since very, very successfully made this jump into Web3 and into storytelling of all kinds. Awesome brand. Check them out. They're the very, very first customer of the Shopify NFT beta program. We love them. Also from Burlington, Vermont, my hometown. Imagine you have this setup, which is the old brand can do a campaign where they make a special item gated to the new brand's token holders. Look at what you accomplish in this move. You give the Web3 brand's fans a reason to care about you, the old brand. And it's like, oh my God, I really want that Gucci sweatshirt. Well, I now have a reason to care about it because it's gated just for me. Or alternately, if I'm a Gucci fan and I really want the Gucci merch, it's like, oh, I really want that merch. I better go check out this community, find out what they're about. This is how you create that demand. This is where it comes from. It doesn't exist out there in nature. You have to create it through these incredible ways of crafting together relationships and crafting storylines. Every time people do a collab or a remix of two different kinds of communities where they both let each other in, in this cool way, it creates a reason for people to want things. This is where it all comes from. Back to the state of the world today, something that maybe exists, but I'm not aware of it and I kind of wish existed was a simple tool for creating the tokens, NFTs, whatever, with some options and a simple system for receiving those things or letting them unlock something, which we've talked about already, obviously. Where do you think we are on that? For me today, again, sorry, just to generalize my own situation, I would have no idea what to do if I wanted to create a batch of a thousand whatevers. And the low friction does seem to be important there, that it's easy for me with my unique intent, uniquely creative intent, hopefully, to be able to execute on it. So what about that piece of this ecosystem? 
To some degree, that straightforward idea of how does a normal person create a new NFT project, you can do that. There are all these NFT marketplaces and services. You can go on OpenSea, create, mint your project. You can use all these things. That doesn't mean that you have the ingredients for a successful community, but it is a starting point. I would say in isolation, many of those pieces are coming together. However, and this is actually an interesting observation, which is there's still too many people, at least a software fluency barrier to doing some of this stuff. You're not wrong when you say like, this all looks kind of hard. Whereas to a developer, it is not hard. That is true. Platforms like Shopify have faced this problem forever. The premise of Shopify is we want to make merchants better at using the internet. If you want to do that, they need to be better at code. And there are two ways to do this. One is you can make coding easier and easier and easier, but you can't make it completely no code. And also you can make it so that there is a really, really rich community of agencies who help merchants set up stores and app developers who go make building blocks of store mechanics and all these things. Remember, the Shopify is not just unilaterally used by merchants who build the store. There's a rich ecosystem of people who do the work of crafting the software into the cool experience. The short answer I would give you is that it's very, very hard to create a good experience online unless you have people who are good at coding on your team. That is probably going to be true forever. Our job is to make it so that you need two people who are good at coding, not 20. Where does this all go from here? Like, this is a new thing. You're spending your career right now trying to make this a possibility for millions and millions of merchants. And the notion of token-gated commerce to be a new thing, maybe that won't be the term, but I like making Shopify wallet aware. I think that's a really simple way to think about all this. How should we think about where things go from here? I can give you a couple of directional ideas in terms of how I prioritize my time and how I think about why am I doing this? Why is this what I'm choosing to do as opposed to, frankly, all of the other fascinating problems to pursue at Shopify, let alone everywhere? Well, a couple of things. One, it's really fun. <laughs> it's important to work on things that are fun because there's something about fun that is impossible to fake. When you're working on fun things and other people are working on fun things, you unlock a kind of delight of building product. There is a kind of magic to it that you do not get if you're working on something that is strictly useful and has no joy to it. So find things that have a joy component to them is really, really important. Second of all, it's important, especially early in your career, because again, I'm thinking about how I'm going to work on this for 10 years. I'm optimizing for what kind of value can I produce with this team over a decade. I think there's something very important to keep in the back of your mind, which is when you are building a career, it's really important to work on something that is considered slightly embarrassing by some of your peers. If you're working on something that everybody praises you for, then you're definitely doing the wrong thing. It means you're in grad school, like wasting your time. Probably the invaluable version of this that is always true is how important it is to have some experience in your life working in sales. If you're like, oh, what do you do? Oh, I work in sales. There are a lot of people who will be like, mm, gross, you work in sales. It's like, no, it's actually the most important thing you can ever do is have some experience in sales because yeah, landing a sale is kind of gross. Sometimes you have to go do dirty, nitty gritty things to get things done. And that experience is worth more than anything else. Similarly, it's really important to spend time in communities that are considered highly gross and weird and suspicious. If you were in the 60s and 70s, if you were young and at the beginning of your career and you wanted to figure out how to build a great business understanding demand, you know who are the best people to go spend time with? They're the hippies because they ended up aging into all of the consumers. And that aesthetic eventually became the dominant consumer aesthetic. Spend time in those communities and this ultimately will really, really reward you. Because ultimately, what is weird, gross counterculture today will just become normal in a decade or something like that. There's no doubt in my mind that all of this, not just the crypto stuff, but I would say internet-fluent people are today's version of the 60s counterculture in the sense that the rest of the world sees it as very sus, but it is also clearly winning. 
And I don't want to say that all the Web3 stuff equals that culture because there are many people who are in that culture and don't identify with this. Fine, who cares? But it's like, spend time in this group of people because over time, this behavior is winning. And the fact that like, oh, people are trying to get rich with crypto and it's all a scam and all of this goes to nothing. If all that accomplishes is it is a payload for getting people to adopt cryptographic key pairs with UX around them, then it's successful because people are going to use that to do cool things. If we're five years from now, and this has been a nothing burger, like none of this has happened. There is no token gated commerce. People aren't using wallets. What do you think explains that outcome? Sometimes you don't get the right magic combination of things for something to really take off. There are plenty of great ideas that ultimately end up in the too early or the didn't quite work graveyard of history. If I would say that the main reason why this doesn't work, the biggest risk to this happening is crypto bull runs because it just gets drowned in stupidity and drowned in people pursuing things that are more locally noisy. I'm so, so happy that the last bull run is over. It means people can actually see what's actually valuable and what's actually useful. If I can actually be critical of the crypto community for a second, I really think that one of the most damaging things for a crypto utility was this idea of this is a way to fund network effects. Tokens are a way to bootstrap protocol adoption because people are motivated to get rich. It's like, oh my God, that has done more damage to real adoption and real use than almost anything else. That is probably our own worst enemy here. And the fact that we're now sort of receding out of that is, I think, a really great thing. The last reason why what if token-gated commerce doesn't succeed is, well, if it doesn't succeed, if ultimately cool creators find other cool ways to connect with their cool fans. That's also good. That's the nice thing about commerce. Everybody wants to do it their own way. And if people find a more compelling way than this, or if people ultimately decide that, nope, this isn't for me, we're going to go back to the old ways we used to collab. That's also great. At the end of the day, the merchant decides what their business wants to be. They're in charge. Our job is to give them what they want, give them the most powerful version of the internet available today to do what they want and make it very easy for them to get help doing it. I love the general idea that the blockchain itself might just be a very convenient way to do all of this coordination. And this last couple of years has definitely felt like the blockchain is the thing itself versus the thing that enables some other set of creative behaviors. And so the whole narrow wasted thing is just so interesting. Every time you and I talk, my mind is spinning with questions and ideas. And so like always, I so appreciate your time explaining this to us. will definitely be something I'm watching very, very carefully. So thank you for introducing me and us to the token gated concept and also for making me think about the nature of demand. Like you said, everyone should try to generate demand at some point. Without it, there's nothing. It's really hard to do. And this could be a new primitive that helps unlock it digitally. Patrick, thank you so much for having me on. As always, every time is such a joy. Plugs, honestly, like if you want to play around with this and see what this is about, there's no substitute for just get a wallet, go places, go try it out. There's nothing stopping you from just going and playing around with this. Go buy 50 bucks worth of ETH, go mess around with it. You'd be surprised how fun it is and what places it's going to take you. Great closing thought. Alex, thanks so much. Thanks, Patrick. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 